Charles Bamforth is the chair of the Department of Food Sciences and Technology and Anheuser-Busch Endowed Professor of Malting and Brewing Sciences at the University of California, Davis, and editor-in-chief of the Journal of the American Society of Brewing Chemists. His new book is Grape vs. Grain. Thank you for joining me, Charles. Thank you for inviting me. Charles, one of the things that you start out with is this idea of beer versus wine. That's some basic thread of this book. And the current state of how drinking each is perceived in the world today. Could you give us your thoughts on this? Yeah, I, I'm fond of saying that wine seems to have stolen the moral high ground. And, and when people think of wine, they think of fine dining and uh, uh, quality of life and uh, summer afternoons and uh, real, you know, it's right up there, right, right high. When they think of Beer, they think of people swilling it down, men behaving badly, and, uh, you know, a little bit less sophisticated, drinking stuff straight out of the container and so on. So I, I'm kind of sensitive to that. I, I, I've been in the brewing industry for 30 years, and I know that beer is uh, every drop as, as sophisticated as, as wine, and I think it needs to be treated that way. Uh, I'm not suggesting that you know, the existing people who drink beer the way they drink beer should uh, desist from that, but I am suggesting that beer should perhaps take itself a little bit more seriously. You you talk about something that, that's I've never thought of, and it's really interesting, the cost-profit ratio for beer versus wine. It's it's not what you'd expect. No, no, it isn't really. Um, you know, a su- su- uh, substantial uh, component of the, the cost of wine clearly is the grapes, and uh, the investment in the, the vineyard is really quite high. Um, with beer, of course, there's more than a single raw material. We're talking uh, uh, grain, but we're also talking hops and water and, and yeast and... Uh, and so um, the, the actual co- uh, composition and the, comp- uh, the contribution of the raw materials to the, to the uh, cost is, is really quite complicated. Um, brewers tend to buy their raw materials from other people, whereas uh, in the world of wine, uh, many uh, of the winemakers are actually heavily invested in the raw material, in other words, the grapes. Now, what does this result in terms of what, what is the cost ratio between the two? I mean, who, who's making more profit? <laughs> <laughs> You've only got to look at a bottle of wine and some of the cost of some of the wine on the, on the, uh, on the supermarket shelves or uh, in, in wine stores and so on. You'll see that there's quite a markup there. And, uh, and so the profit margin is, is very considerable. Um, for beer, then, um, the actual contribution for many beers of the cost of the raw materials is relatively less. Um, pro rata, the cost of the uh, package is going to be greater, but beer tends to be sold um, at a at a lower price and uh, in in you know uh, larger quantities should we suggest, um, and uh, you know it's it, it's a complicated scenario. Beer is uh, still primarily focused uh, at the masses and therefore the the laws of uh, uh, cost uh, and uh, um, demand actually come into play quite significantly. One thing you mentioned, too, in, uh, at the upshot, is that storage of, of the two is a marketing issue, and I never thought of it that way. Yeah, well, you'll never hear anybody say, hey, come around to my place. We've got a, I've got a 1959 Coors Original. Let's break it open. And, uh, <laughs> Whoa, you haven't. How much did you pay for that? Wow, what a steal. Uh, let's, uh, you know, uh, discuss the nuances. Of, you know, brewers don't tend to do that. Uh, beer is, uh, very few beers are, are as good as they are when they're first put, first put into the package. Um, 
you know, it's inherently a, a sensitive uh, uh, product. The stronger beers, the, the ones that have got a strength, an alcoholic strength comparable to those of wine, then you can do the same sorts of discussions, you know, and they will have a longer shelf life and they will have interesting flavor changes taking place. But the bulk of the beers, the ones of the, uh, you know, uh, the 4 or 5% alcohol by volume, uh, they're going to be pro uh, prone to uh, destabilization. They're going to be prone to aging and development of uh, oxidized flavors, uh, cardboard flavors, and so on. So the, the whole issue of um, the storage of beer is very, very significant. And, of course, the whole issue of transportation and shipping. Um, beers that are coming into the United States, for example, from overseas, they've traveled a long way. And for the majority of those beers, that's not really good for their flavor. You, I like the way the book is laid out. Uh, could you explain how you've got it laid out? It's just like a stack Well, of I, I wanted to start off by basically setting the scene um, and pointing out that I'm, I'm not anti-wine. I'm just pro-beer. Um, uh, but then, you know, we, w I look into the history of the two products, uh, wine and beer, uh, both, of whom, uh, both of which have got very long and, and proud histories. Um, and, you know, I wasn't there 8,000 years ago. I, I'm not actually able to say which came first, but I, I believe beer. Of course I do, because I'm a brewing-oriented person. But I go through the history, uh, and then I go through the, the, uh, the, the manner by which they're made. And there is no question that beer is a much more complicated and more challenging product to make, um, because, by and large, most brewers are seeking to produce consistent products year after year, despite the variation in, in raw materials, uh, whereas the winemaker will champion those variations and talk about things like vintages. Brewers don't. They, um, they seek to overcome seasonal uh, change to get consistent product. Then I talk about the actual quality uh, components and the actual nature of wine and, and beer and the actual factors which influence the quality. And again, it's more complicated for beer because, you know, you've not only got the flavor, but you've got the much more appearance things at play, foam and clarity and so on. Um, and then uh, I, we talk about the, the, the styles of the, the beers and styles of wine and, and finally um, about uh, the, the uh, matching of the beer and wine with foodstuffs and the, the whole he health issue as well, the relative healthfulness of beer and wine. So this is a really interesting. It's a side-by-side -side comparison of the two. <clears throat> as a as a brewer, you're you're more inclined to like and champion the the, the beer, and I think it's interesting uh, to to see this beer treated in this manner because, as you say, it's not something that's commonly done. Yeah, it's true, um, and and it's unfortunate. Um, again, I, I I would say who drinks the most beer? It's young men. And frankly, I don't think they're particularly motivated or, or driven or in, even interested in me talking about the health-giving properties of beer or uh, the merits of alcohol consumption in moderation. I understand that. What I do want to do is to make people realize that, that beer is, is sophisticated or can be sophisticated. Um, there are many, many different types of beer. There are far, far greater... Uh, variety, quite a far greater range of beers than there are of wines. I, I jokingly say, well, what have you got with wine? You've got red, white, and pink. Um, with beer, you've got everything from 0% alcohol to 26% alcohol. You've got everything from colorless to black. You've got uh, all manner of flavors um, from the traditional raw materials and from others as well. Tremendous diversity. 
Um, and, uh, you know, people, some people have said to me, I don't like beer. And I say, well, that's simply because you haven't found the right beer for you. Because there is one out there that you're going to like. you just got to find it. Um, I get so irritating when I see people drinking beer straight out of the bottle or even worse, the can, you know. Uh, it should be treated with respect. It should be poured into a glass. Uh, and again, in the book, I, I, I refer to... Uh, places like Belgium, you know, uh, an old friend of mine in Belgium, you went to his house, you know, he spent 15 minutes trying to find the right glass for the right beer, you know, um, none of this sort of, well, any glass will do, or, you know, hey, just drink it straight out of the bottle. It had to be presented with pride and with respect, and that's real, uh, you know, it's it's venerating the product, it's putting beer on the on the place where it belongs, it needs to be respected. Let's ratchet back and talk about the history uh, of, of wine, because y- you mentioned this. Now, you've, got, you've told us you thought, think beer is older, and we'll get to, to the reasons <laughs> why. But uh, wine cultivation started around 6,000 B.C. That's a long time ago. Yeah, and it was around the same time that people believed that beer also was, was uh, uh, first uh, discovered or evolved uh, whatever how it happened people say well what did it taste like I said I don't know I wasn't there but uh, and 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 clearly grapes growing wild the fruit and yeast naturally um, Saccharomyces naturally inhabits grapes let's be frank it doesn't naturally inhabit grain and this is one of the things that the winemakers say well hey you know how would you prevent these wine uh, grapes for these grapes from spontaneously sort of fermenting and producing alcohol? And the answer is yes, they would do that. Um, but, um, you know, the, the the very first beers were almost certainly uh, developed by accidental germination of grain. Uh, and then they found that when the grain, the barley, and the primitive forms of wheat called emma, when they germinated, they sprouted, they got softer, they developed interesting flavors like bean sprouts. Um, and then they found they could make them into breads, and, and when they cooked them and dried them, they got nice malty flavors. And But then, they, they for whatever reason, they stored those in, in jars that had had fruit in them previously, dates uh, and, and other types of fruit. And that's where the yeast came from. Um, so, you know, all of this was happening in the fertile crescent, modern-day Iraq and surrounding countries, all around the same time, so six, eight, 8,000 years ago. People... Some people think, well, honey was probably the very first, um, uh, in converting into m- what we now would call mead was the first alcoholic beverage. Who knows? I mean, it was there all there around the same time. If people say to me, well, you know, the Bible, the Bible's got, got wine in it, it doesn't have beer in it. And I, you know, I, there are some people who think it does, it just doesn't use the word beer. Uh, you know, and I'm, they say, well, Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine. All I say is, well, it was far too technologically demanding to make beer, so wine was easier. But uh, that's totally facetious, of course. But uh, and what do you expect a beer guy to say after all? You know, <laughs> one of the things about uh, wine that interests me is uh, a phylloxera. Could you talk about the the impact that that had on the industry? Yeah, I mean, that was uh, the, the, the character which actually was introduced into European um, uh, strains and, and so on and, and really decimated the crop over there. Um, so it's, it, it's something that, uh, that was a, a real shock and a challenge at the time um, that actually helped, um, perhaps helped 
spur people to actually ship over here and and and, and come to to America, but uh, it uh, you know it, it was a real. I mean, it just went through the European crop. So um, you talk about in the history of beer. Um, you mentioned that uh, the first people to brew beer in the British Isles, um, which <laughs> I'm presuming is your <laughs> home base. I am of uh, English extraction, yeah. Uh, were the Celts? Yeah. Uh, again, there's all sorts of speculation about who was, in, who was involved in uh, doing uh, some of the early brewing. You know, people, the, the Beaker people were mentioned and so on, and it relates to the types of containers that were involved and what vessels were available to carry out fermentation. And of course, one of the reasons why a country like the British Isles or a nation or a islands like the British Isles were suitable for beer, less so wine, was because it was cooler and, and uh, more suited to growing grain than, uh, than growing uh, grapes. Although the Romans made a lot of wine in the British Isles as well when they uh, uh, came over and uh, um, uh, took advantage of our country. Um, but, um, uh, you know, th there's all sorts of uh, interesting evidence to suggest what sorts of things were going into brews in those days. And, and there's various um, uh, remains that have been analyzed to see what sort of plants were, were used to, to flavor um, beers, as, or whatever they were called in those days. They weren't, weren't called beers. Um, I, I, I was also interested to find that uh, at the historical figures who played a part in, in beer, Charlemagne, not not a guy I'd expect to. Uh, no, <laughs> no, and, and and Charlemagne and uh, various other people, um, the Grand Old Duke of York, and there was another one. These uh, were figures who had great passion about beer being brewed properly, um, and they introduced certain rules and regulations about who could brew beer and what. Uh, what could be done in the brewing process? So the, you know the, the 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 Duke's laws, the Duke of the Grand Old Duke of York, he he had rules and regulations. So did Charlemagne, and of course, the ultimate manifestation of of uh, the state influencing what could and what could not be used for brewing was was uh, in Bavaria with the uh, the Reinheitsgebot. Tell us about that. Well, the Reinheitsgebot really was introduced by the, the Duke of Bavaria to, uh, because people were actually using all sorts of dubious sorts of materials to make beer. Um, and so it was simplified that they could only use uh, malt, malted barley, or indeed malted wheat, uh, water, and hops. Um, yeast at the time was not known. Uh, people knew that there was something which gathered at the top of a fermentation, and that could be put back into the next um, fermentation to, to kick it off. And uh, the UK, that was, or the England, that was known as God is good, because God was good, I mean, allowing the next batch of beer to be brewed. So the original Reinheitsgebot does not uh, include yeast. Now, of course, it, it, it is in there. Um, so the Reinheitsgebot um, was uh, the, the ultimate German purity law. Um, I, my understanding is, I'm not absolutely sure about the current legal status, but I believe it's the case that it's uh, now a beer cannot be excluded from the German markets because it does not adhere to the Reinheitsgebot. But somehow um, there is this uh, holier-than-thou attitude um, that only beer made with those uh, materials is, is, is worthy and good. And I think that's a very limited uh, uh, attitude because there are some great beers in the world that are made using some other raw materials as well. Wholesome raw materials, but others. 
tell me about when hops came into beer, because it wasn't always part of beer, was it? Uh, no. Um, the, uh, again, it was linked into the church, and one of the first people, um, uh, St. Hildegard, um, observed that uh, hops uh, help preserve beer, and so they do. This is Hildegard von Bingen? Uh, yeah. So, wow. Uh, so um, so uh, St. Hildegard said, you know, it's um, uh, these are anti, I don't know the exact words, but it was realized that they had uh, anti-infection uh, effects. And it's known that there are materials, the bitter compounds on the hops, which prevent lactic acid bacteria from, from many lactic acid bacteria from growing in, in beer. Um but throughout Europe, there were other um, flavorants, uh, thing, uh, which were collectively known as gruit. Um, and these were proprietary blends of herbs and spices that were used, A, as flavorants, and B, as preservatives as well. And there were all sorts of interesting things, bog myrtle, and coriander, and uh, strychnine, and who knows what else. Um, but it, progressively, in mainland Europe, what is now Europe, um, the hop came through, thank goodness, uh, for as being the prime uh, antiseptic, if you like, but also flavor and spice of beer. It was in my country um, that it was one of the last places to be adopted. So the old word for ale um, is unhopped beer. Ales in, in England were unhopped beers. They had to be quite strong, quite alcoholic to prevent microorganisms from growing in there, from spoiling. But when the hops came in, that meant that, well, they didn't have to be, these beers did no longer have to be quite so strong. And uh, therefore, the, the, the alcohol content came down. And so they had these nice hoppy flavors, but they were less alcoholic. And in England, it was known as a wicked and pernicious weed. I think King Henry VIII had uh, certain views on the, the, uh, the, 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 the inappropriateness of using hops. Uh, but thank goodness now, uh, hops are almost always used in beer. And uh, even, I mean, now the word ale, um, there are many ales that are very, very strongly hopped, particularly in the United States of America. You know, one thing that shocked me was, was the first kegged beer, 1946. That's yeah, a lot more quite re yeah. recent than I expect. That's right. Um, Green and company. Um, you're relatively recent. Um, and... Uh, uh, so it's the J.W. Green Company. Um, still, in some parts of the world, dra uh, cask or uh, draft beer is more prevalent. Uh, for example, in the United Kingdom, um, still, although there's been a shift towards premium bottle beers and canned beers for consumption at home, still, uh, kegged beer and c traditional cask ales are still quite popular, uh, although the latter are in decline. A and could you talk about what happened? during the prohibition with beer because it was popular and it, and probably hard to uh, quash. Yeah, certainly. And um, there were moves to actually actually market beer as a uh, for its medicinal value, um, but that didn't work. Um, it, it, you know, as the history is, is well known and, and beer was, uh, was outlawed alongside other alcoholic beverages, the impact was quite the opposite. You'd, you stop somebody from doing something, and they're going to do it all the more. And so I forget what the data was. It's all in the book. I can't remember the precise numbers. But, you know, there were, you know, a lot more speakeasies after Prohibition than there were bars, you know. And there was a huge increase in drink driving offenses in Chicago. Um, and people were drinking all sorts of dubious concoctions, whereas, of course, uh, beer is a drink of moderation. And uh, done properly by proper brewers, 
uh, is a very safe and wholesome commodity. And if you don't allow those brewers to actually apply their trade and all sorts of other people come in, uh, then you're going to get some fairly interesting and undesirable uh, liquids. Um, Al Capone, I think, became uh, the principal brewmaster of the United States of America at that time. But thank goodness that days, days are gone. You talked about interesting liquids when you let anybody brew. That happened in 1978, again, and something that's a shockingly recent date. Yeah, the uh, move towards homebrew, yeah. That's what you're referring yes. to. Yes. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, President Carter's uh, uh, was in the, the helm at the time. Yeah, uh, in this country, of course, in other uh, parts of the world, when I was a boy in the uh, in the UK, homebrew was, was reasonably popular. In fact, when I was research manager at Bass, we actually designed a homebrew kit uh, in the uh, in the laboratory. It was so good that our chairman uh, outlawed it. He said, no, no, people won't go to the pub if they can brew it themselves like that. But back to the United States, I mean, it really did spawn a tremendous growth in interest um, in, in brewing and some very notable names. Um, were brewing at home. I think one or two of these notable names were actually brewing at home before that. Um, <laughs> but um, <A> who? <laughs> oh no, 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 no names. Uh, um, but um, but you know, it certainly did uh, generate a lot of interest. And now, whereas uh, around that time there were fewer than a hundred breweries in the United States of America, now there are forget the exact number. There must be about one thousand three hundred, one thousand four hundred breweries uh, across the United States and some of them fold every year but lots more actually get started as well and that's great it really generates a, l a huge amount of interest in the, uh, for for brewing um, and um, all brewers applaud that and speaking of uh, legacies tell us about one of the Margaret Thatcher's legacy for <laughs> beer making <laughs> Now you're, now you're talking about one of my least favorite politicians of all time. I'll give you the short version. Uh, she believed that there was a m monopoly in uh, the UK brewing industry. Uh, at the time, and I was with Bass, which was the, the biggest of the big six brewers in uh, the UK, um, those six brewers uh, owned their own pubs. It was uh, vertical integration. So Bass had 6,350 pubs from memory. And she said, no, you, you know, you've got a monopoly there. You are brewing the beer and you are selling it. And uh, this is a monopoly. The fact is there were six big breweries and lots of smaller breweries as well, but it was still a monopoly. She said, you can either basically own pubs or you can brew beer. And where is the profit on a, um, on a pint of beer? The profit is in the bar. The profit is not in the brewing, unless you're brewing a lot of beer. And so basically, although brewers could own a relatively small number of pubs, uh, in fact, the, the figure was set at 2,000, but so that meant we had to get rid of 4,350, which was quite a challenge. So brewers had to decide whether they were going to be brewers, uh, in which case they could own few pubs, or retailers, in which case, as long as they didn't brew their own beer, they could have as many pubs as they want. And so people went into retail because that's where the profit is made. And so these breweries became pub companies and got out of brewing. So my old company, Bass, they basically sold half their breweries to InBev, uh, or as it's now known, Interbrew at the time, and the other half to Coors. Uh, so now it's Coors of Burton-on-Trent as well as Coors of Golden, Colorado. And Bass became, uh, I think it's the world's biggest hotelier. <laughs> wow. That's so if you stay at a Holiday Inn, then that's good. That's helping my shares. <laughs> I'm glad to, to hear that. <laughs> um you talk about how the two are made, and let's talk real briefly about wine just to get an idea, because it's not that tough. 
Oh, I, I'm, I'm very facetious, but I say, you know, you tread a few grapes and, and uh, wait, you know, and what you do while you're waiting, while you drink beer. Um, <laughs> with beer, if you tread grain, all you get is sore feet. Um, it's, uh, clearly, there is a lot involved in making excellent wine. Of course there is. Um, selection of, of good grapes. Um, and, uh, you, know, the, you know, there is a crushing process. Um, they're probably less fastidious about the yeast, for example, than brewers are. They're, they're less likely to have their own house strains of yeast. Um, uh, and as I've said already, you know, they're prepared to tolerate the seasonal variation and, and put a, the, the label vintage on it. Brewers, bre the brewing process is altogether more complicated. We, 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 brewers are just as choosy about their raw materials, as just as much, and, uh, if not more, attention to choosing the right raw materials and quality controlling them. And of course, there are many more raw materials. Um, and then there's the lengthy malting process. So the, the grain has to be germinated, and this takes uh, several days. And then it's got to be stored for a month before you can use it. And then there's a, a milling process and there's an extraction process where you're breaking down the starch. And then there's a boiling stage with the hops and then cooling. And then there's the fermentation, which is very rigorously controlled. And then there's the downstream stabilization and conditioning. And, and, and so it's an altogether much more complicated process. You know, um, people say, well, wine's much more sophisticated. It's very complicated. Well, yeah. There are probably a 1,000 different chemical compounds in, uh, in wine. There are 2,000 in beer. I mean, it is more, it's simply more complicated and more challenging to make. Uh, and you, you can't argue any other way than that. Um, and ag again, you know, it's, it's not one crush, you know, once a year. Uh, well, all heck is let loose. Uh, it's, uh, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, for 52 weeks of the year, and that's brewing. And I'm glad they're at it. Yeah, <laughs> me too. <laughs> uh, tell us, uh, I've heard on the news that there's a, a hop shortage. Is that still true? Yeah, there is. Um, and a tipping point was, was reached, basically, um, that um, um, hops weren't very highly priced. Um, and, um, and really, uh, a relatively low contribution to the, the cost uh, uh, of a bottle of beer, uh, the hop, but a huge importance for quality. Um, and frankly, some hop growers got kind of irritated with this and basically took out hops. They, they stopped growing them. Meanwhile, um, volumes of beer continued to grow worldwide, and then the tipping point was reached where there were no longer enough hops to satisfy the market. And the result is people were scrapping around for, for hops. Now, the, the, the major, the really good, successful uh, brewing companies, they forward contract, and so they're, they're okay for you know, going forward. But some of the smaller guys who couldn't do that sort of thing or didn't do that sort of thing, then they were really trying to find hops wherever they could find them. So the price is, is several-fold higher now than it was, say, 12 months ago. It's a, it's a hope pack. Hope pack cartel. <laughs> You know, it's it's it it's interesting, and uh, you know, it's just another illustration of the vast complexity of factors which go into the brewing industry. Let's break down the beer a little bit. Beer generally, for the most part, uses barley, although there are wheat beers. The the hefeweizens, I I like a good hefeweizen. Uh, yeah, and there are, well, there are hefeweizens, and there are also crystal weizens, which are. As the name would suggest, they've been filtered, so they're bright. Whereas hefeweizens, of course, still got the yeast in there and, and are quite cloudy. Um, I actually love 
Hefeweizen when it's an authentic Hefeweizen. So if I'm in Frankfurt Airport, that's what I'll be having for breakfast uh, with some nice sausage. Um, an authentic Hefeweizen, by the way, should have a nice clove-like flavor. It should, should uh, taste of cloves. And that's because uh, the, the yeast that is used, an ale-type yeast, which is used for making Hefeweizen, has got a... Uh, an extra enzyme as part of its makeup, which actually makes this clovey, phenolic sort of flavor, uh, spicy sort of flavor. And that's real good. Uh, and, and there should never be a slice of lemon in the top. Uh, throw away the lemon. It doesn't belong there. Uh, now, what, tell me what brand of Hefeweizen to buy, because I, I need to know. Uh, well, I'll, uh, I'll plug a, a, a friend of mine. Uh, if you go to Gordon Biersch and you, you have Dan Gordon's uh, Hefeweizen, you'll find that it's, it's uh, really got that nice, authentic character. Dan, Dan trained in Germany, so he knows what a Hefeweizen's all about. How does barley play into this? Where does it grow? And what is malting barley exactly? What does that mean? Yeah, barley uh, is grown in uh, in states like Montana and Idaho. Um, and, of course, Canada is very important as a source of, uh, of barley. But across the world, there are many great uh, barley-growing countries, uh, the U.K., uh, Australia, and so on. Um, any barley will germinate, but some barleys give higher yields, um, very high yields of fermentable material. And those are the malting varieties. And they, they, they also give it up easily. They give it up readily. So they sprout well and they develop high levels of the enzymes that develop germination. And those enzymes, in turn, break down high levels of starch to produce a lot of this fermentable material. Um, also, for, for barley, uh, the more protein in the barley, the less starch. And it's the starch that actually ultimately will go through to the alcohol. So you don't want too much protein. So what that means is you've got to have relatively low protein levels. So you can't start putting nitrogenous fertilizers onto the field, otherwise you just get uh, too much protein. And so the yield in the field of malting barley is substantially less than the feed barley. And in all this plays against the incentivize, incentivizing the, the farmer to grow it. You know, the yields are lower, and you've got to avoid any uh, risk of infection and so on and so forth. And so you have to, you know, it's, it's expensive. Um, uh, maltsters have to pay this premium to actually get the best barley. So once again, it's, uh, it's always a challenge, you know, because, you know, there are people who will prefer to grow other things uh, if they're less risky crops than malting barley. And as I say, brewers and maltsters before them are fastidious about, about the barley. It's got to be the right stuff. Could you tell me about the types and flavors of malts, what, what they are and what that means to me, the, the yeah, kind of the, swill the, in it? Yeah, the last um, <laughs> stage in the malting process is called kilning. This is a drying process. And uh, basically, uh, apart from driving off moisture and stabilizing the product, it also um, develops flavor and color. And this comes from um, some of the materials that are inside the, the, the sprouted grain that react together. And the more intensity you heat, the more color and more flavor you get. So if you heat it very gently, you get very pale color and very light flavors, like a lager malt. If you heat it to a slightly greater extent, um, then you get a bit more color, a bit more flavor, then you've got an ale malt. But if you keep on heating, you get more and more color and more and more flavor. And so if you want to have some specialty malts, which are added in relatively small quantities to get different characteristics, this is how it's done. So you might get something like a caramel malt, which is heated to a, a significant extent, uh, and that gives you these nice caramel, toffee-like flavors. The ultimate is you basically burn um, the stuff, and you get real roasted characters, uh, chocolate malts, which have got characters a bit like the, the really dark, uh, astringent chocolate, 
or black malts, which are the sorts of things that go into stouts uh, to give real burnt character. I mean, if you sit for a moment, you drink a stout, and you, you, you pause and think, well, what am I tasting? Then you're getting some real roasted character, real, you know, it's, it's, it's much like having a real, you know, a black coffee, you know, you're, you're drinking it, and you think, wow, that's, uh, that's real burnt, you know. Well, it's the same with some of these stouts, uh, and that's where it's coming from. You, you talk, one of the things that, that stages of beer is wart. What is wart? Wort is a good old Anglo-Saxon word. It, it basically is the uh, the liquid extract from the malt. So the first stage in the malt um, in the brewing process is you grind the malt to, to make a uh, small particles, which are then mixed with water, about two three parts water to one part grist, as we call it, grist to the mill, um, and um, and it's heated. And the enzymes that are present break down the starch to form sugars. And that liquid is, is run off the residual grain, the left grain, and that liquid is called wort. And the residual spent grain, most of it goes to cattle feed. And so there's a big business in, in taking away these spent grains from breweries and going off to find the nearest herd of cows to, to actually give them these nice spent grains. And the wort then is boiled. And it's another reason why beer is real safe to drink, because you boil it. Um, and uh, so that stage, you put in the hops to provide uh, bitterness and aroma. Now, tell me about ale and strains of yeast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, there are, there are basically two different types of, of brewing yeast. There are ale strains and there are lager strains. Ale strains, Saccharomyces cerevisiae, lager strains, uh, Saccharomyces pastorianus. Um, and it, uh, the ale strains, there are many more ale strains. They evolve separately across, you know, people have isolated them separately from all across the world. The original lager strain came out of a relatively narrow area in uh, in Bavaria. And it's been a history of theft, basically. Um, really? Yeah. <laughs> so the first lager yeast came out of there, and, and then it was stolen uh, by the Czechs, basically, and, and taken to the Czech Republic, uh, well, whatever it was called, uh, Bohemia. And, uh, you know, obviously made some great beer there, which is very prized these days. And then it was stolen again by the Danes, who had the effrontery to, to put their name on it uh, and call it um, something else, which I won't call a name. Um, <laughs> and then, um, uh, so basically there are, there are relatively few lager strains. It's, it's more complicated than ale yeast. There, it would appear, if you analyze the, the DNA in uh, lager strains, that it's, it, it looks as if um, what a lager strain is, is half, well, yeah, it was a meld of Saccharomyces cerevisiae with something called Saccharomyces baianus, which is the, the yeast that is used in uh, champagne production. And it looks like a lager strain is uh, originally, you know, whenever, eons ago, uh, these two uh, yeast strains merged to make uh, what we now call Saccharomyces pastorianus or uh, lager yeast. Traditionally, it sinks to the bottom of the fermenter, uh, ale strain, ale yeast, right at the top of an open fermenter. When it comes to, to quality, I mean, how good is it? Wine is getting more and more of a reputation that I would call the emperor's new clothes. <laughs> <laughs> and and it w- I think we have primarily to thank for that Trader Joe's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I'm, I've got to be careful what I say. Um, you know, I, I, I drink wine. 
I drink wine, and there are some, some great wines. Um, there are some that are not so great. And there are some very fine wines which are really economically priced. Uh, but as soon as they become named, you know, I mean, there's a famous example of a, a relatively uh, low-priced wine that was around two bucks in price, which actually did very well in a blind tasting in a, a competition. And as soon as it was identified for what it was, then the, the expert tasters were dismayed. And you know, had it been labeled, there's no way it would have got through into the finals. But because it was blind tasted, you know, the, the, the merits came through and there were some very fine, there are some very fine wines which are very economically priced. So um, if we turn to beer, then as I've said already, the, 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 the byword, the, the watchword is consistency. What brewers, most brewers are looking for is consistency, consistent excellence according to a flavor profile and they will adjust the brewing process to match that brewing that flavor profile every time. I had an email somewhere. I get lots of emails. Uh, I'll tell you two of them. One was a, a guy who emailed me and said, well, why do I keep talking about consistency? He liked surprises. I said, yeah, but if you go to fill your car up with gas and the, your car doesn't go, you don't like that surprise. So why would you like a surprise getting a beer that doesn't taste the way you would like it to taste? That's not my idea of a... A sensible proposition whatsoever. The other email I, I got from a woman was, uh, uh, Dear Professor Bamford, is it true the difference between Guinness brewed in Ireland and, and Guinness brewed in London is they marinate a dead cow in the beer in Ireland? So I emailed back and I said, You know, in almost 30 years in the brewing industry, I don't think I've heard anything quite so stupid. Uh, everybody, everybody knows it's a sheep. And so she emailed me back and said, thank you. So uh, that is an apocryphal story. That is not true. But uh, I get lots of strange emails. But, but, but it's all about consistency. One thing that uh, it makes <coughs> beer, it's an important comp component of beer, is the foam you mentioned. Yeah. So tell me about foam. And I always, I used to buy, I bought a couple times these Boddington cans. <laughs> and they have this special kind of thing in them. The widget. I, yeah, the widget. And I thought, is I'm, I always wondered whether or not this was a good thing. Well, uh, a dear friend of mine uh, frequently tells me um, that I shouldn't stamp my opinions on other people. And um, uh, what some people like is not necessarily what I like. So, you know, far from it for me to, uh, to say uh, whether widget is a good thing or a bad thing. Let's just say that when I have beers with widgets in them, it makes me realize how grateful I am for other types of beers. Um, foam is is, is, is is very important, you know, um, uh, and I say that with good evidence. We've done many studies to show that if, you, if, if people see a beer with a foam in it, they will score it higher. Even those people who, who commit the cardinal sin of pouring beer and not pouring beer into a bottle, uh, or into a glass, and pouring and drinking it straight out of the bottle. They will, if they're shown a picture of beer, will say the one with the foam and it's better. Uh, so there's a psychological component at play here. The reason why you get a stable foam on beer, you don't get it on, say, uh, a cola, is that uh, there are proteins in in beer which uh, stabilize the bubble wall, and they cross-link with the bitter compounds. So they also help stabilize the uh, the foam. So you get these proteins from the grain and bitter compounds on the hops, which stabilize the foam. Um, but if you put your beer into a, 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 a greasy or dirty glass, or uh, I'm, I'm looking at you right now, if you've got a mustache with great globules of fat that are dripping off into the foam, you will, into, you will kill the foam. So uh, 
Lipstick also is a killer for foam as well. But um, but uh, so clean glass, um, perhaps a scratch at the bottom of the glass as well helps the bubbles rise, a nucleation point. And that's what the widget is. The widget is a nucleation device. It actually was first pioneered by the Guinness Company. And um, what Guinness have done for many years is put nitrogen gas uh, into the, the beer. And what nitrogen gas does is, is give very, very stable foams. Uh, so that's why the foam on Guinness is, is sensationally stable. It's got this nitrogen gas in there, which helps stabilize it. And when Guinness wanted to put beer into a, a can for consumption at home, um, because the carbon dioxide level is quite low, um, what you needed to do was to have some way of generating the, the, the bubbles. And that's what the widget does. You take the, take the top off and bubbles start to come out of the, the widget, basically. It's a nucleation device. Um, now, with the ales, um, it works as well. Um, but the problem with nitrogen is uh, nitrogen gas is, in my opinion, again, this is my opinion, is good for stouts because it takes the, some of that roast, burnt, harsh character away, which is good. It smooths that. But for an ale, it's not a good thing. It takes away the, the hoppy character. And we don't know why it does it, but it does. It takes away this nice hoppiness. And, of course, it, that is, to my mind, destroys the product. Um, but uh, lots of people drink it, so, you know, who's to say? Okay. I, I drink my beer out of a tall, kind of thin, slightly curved glass that I store in the freezer. Is that is this what? And I generally drink uh, either a lager or an ale. Uh, uh, the uh, Schwatten Premium is is my poison of choice. How do we choose match beer and glasses? Does it matter? There's an it, possibly it does, uh, but the science is inexact at this point in time. And I, you know, there's n there's about one study I think I mentioned in the book which actually draws attention to the, the best glass for the best uh, for the for the right beer. Um, I think you know if you go to Belgium. Um, then clearly there is a, a factor at play here, but you know the branding is as much as anything else. The, the actual beer brand on the uh, on the uh, a glass, and of course many of these glass glass beer permutations have evolved over the years or have, have had historical significance. So it probably came originally from a point of difference. They're saying, "Hey, our glass is a different shape to yours, and it got to go with this beer." You know. And, and probably then they, did, they build a science around that and say, well, this is the reason why, whereas the reason why originally was, well, it's kind of different. It's like, it's like a well-known beer in a green glass bottle. You know, it, it, the green glass is, is, green is, associated, is associated with that beer. And, of course, even though the fact is that, you know, beer in green glass bottles is not as stable as beer in brown glass bottles because... Light can penetrate the green glass bottle where it doesn't penetrate the brown glass bottle. And it reacts, the light causes the bitter compounds to break down and give skunky flavors. Uh, personally, I am not a fan of a skunky flavor. There, there are some people who are, but I'm not. And that's one of the pitfalls. Let's talk very quickly. Types of wine are pretty straightforward. You, you know, there's just... They're divided by grapes, essentially, or where they're grown, and, and yeah. that's pretty straightforward. Uh, I'd like you to talk about the types of beers. And you said that ales used to describe unhopped products. My experience of ales is they're generally more alcoholic than a, a regular beer. Is that always true? Or no, that's not, that's not true. In fact, uh, or certainly not always true. And indeed, um, there's a lot of confusion about the strength of beer. Um, Again, in England, um, if you have an ale in England, the chances are it's going to be relatively low in alcohol. 
Um, and there are historical reasons for that, but one of the main reasons is that um, the taxation on beer is prorated to the alcohol strength. So it makes a lot more sense to have a 3.5% alcohol beer than a 5% alcohol beer. So by and large, the, the alcoholic strength of beers in the UK and beers in the United States uh, is less in the UK than it is in the United States. Uh, many times more flavor. Um, not in always the in the in the UK, but but yeah, but not always. Um, um, so ale doesn't certainly is not a simple correlation with with alcohol content. In fact, if you, again, if you stay in the UK, some of the strongest beers are, are lagers. Uh, some of these, you know, nine ten percent alcohol products. Having said which, there are some very high alcohol ales like barley wines and so on. But there's no simple correlation with beer, ales or lagers, and uh, and alcohol content. Tell me about porters and stouts. When were they invented and why? Well, the original uh, porter came first, and the word stout is extra stout porter. So that was a, a strong porter um, devised by Arthur Guin uh, Guinness. Uh, porters uh, e emerged in, um, in response to the, the taxation on malt. Um, and um, in, at the time, um, if you burnt wood, um, then the, the taxation was much less than burning coal because there was uh, a, a, a premium uh, on, on coal because it was for hygiene reasons. So malt, which had been killed using wood, was much cheaper. Uh, it was called brown malt, and therefore it went into cheaper beers. Uh, beers that were actually sold for the masses in, the, uh, in industrial London, uh, including porters uh, in the marketplace. And that's why they were called porters. So it was a cheap beer for the masses, which was made with a cheaper malt because of the taxation reason. I have to ask you, warm beer, why? <laughs> why? Oh, that's a myth. Why? That's a myth. Um, it's, it's historic. You know, beer, uh, the traditional type of beer um, in, uh, in England is cask-conditioned ale which is beer which uh, at the end of ferment primary fermentation is run into wooden barrels historically. They may be of metal these days. Wooden barrels mixed with uh, Isinglass finings um, with a handful of hops, dry hops, and a little bit of sugar for the residual yeast to produce natural carbonation in the product. It's called cask-conditioned ale. And for that yeast to continue to work uh, in the brewery but then in the cellar, it can't be too cold, you know. It, it's not going to be too cold. It's got to be not too hot, but you know, it's kind of cool in England. And in, in a cellar underground, it's it's cooler still. So um, it's it, it's a myth to say that it's warm. You know, people thinking of warm tea or something like that. It's not. It's it's cellar temperature, which is it's just cool. I mean, I. Uh, forgive me, I use Celsius. You know, there's only one country in the world um, that uses Fahrenheit in the brewing industry, and we're in it. And I feel like a missionary over here. But uh, you guys are still in Fahrenheit. But you know, the the the, the Celsius. We're going to be talking about um, 10 Celsius. Room temperature maybe about 20 Celsius. But you know, a cellar maybe 10, 12, uh, no higher than 15 Celsius. So that's it's it's not warm. It's cool. Okay. Now, I have to ask you about two, we're going to finish up with two travesties. The number one beer in the United States. What is it? Budweiser. Bud Light, actually. Bud Light in the United States. And Budweiser is number two. Uh, 
That's scary. No, no. What, no. what do you think? Of, I mean, it's a tra- it's a time honored tradition. I mean, they were just bought by uh, Imbev. Uh, um, what do you think about all that? Well, I, 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 let me first of all say about Budweiser and Bud Light. Budweiser um, is an excellent beer. Um, it's a gently flavored beer, and those are the hardest beers to make because you can't disguise any defect in them. So quality wise, they are. They are so consistent. That speaks to the quality ethos of Anheuser-Busch. And I would say this uh, even if I wasn't the Anheuser-Busch and that professor. And I think the, the world of brewing knows uh, that uh, AB is the flagship for quality. So what do I think of the takeover by InBev? I, all I hope is that InBev will, uh, will embrace the uh, Anheuser-Busch quality ethos and, and realize that what they're picking up there is the real leader for quality, and I hope they w- that will transcend now through the entire organization. Um, I also hope they keep the, bu- the uh, Clydesdales. I, you know, <laughs> I hear, I, I'm scared about, uh, 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 you know, the words I hear about uh, cutting costs, and, uh, you know, there are some things that I guess aren't essential uh, to some people, but I think it's quite important. Uh, I, I agree. I, I, as a man who was taken to Bud Gardens, Bush Gardens, and, and right, we were. I lived in Azusa, right below one oh, of the breweries, and, and it was. I was a Coors Brewery actually that I lived below, but I went to Bush Gardens. I mean, I remember that, and it was a. It was pretty fun. Yeah. Uh, one last question: Alcohol-free beers? <laughs> are they? Are, is there such a thing? <laughs> oh yeah, and uh, and when I was research manager at Bass, I I was instrumental in redesigning the uh, flavor of one of them, which is called Barbican. It was genuinely alcohol-free. We used to make a full-strength um, beer and then strip all the alcohol out of it and uh, then doctor the flavor. Um, and th- that says it all, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> uh, so, you know, uh, again, let me just say I'm stamping my opinion here, but, you know, it's like the same as having decaffeinated coffee. I don't. If I don't want caffeine, I don't drink coffee, you know. So if I don't want alcohol, I don't drink beer. Uh, I drink something else. Um you know, it's it depends on your definition of what alcohol-free and low alcohol is. And, and finally, you kind of debunked the images of wine and beer and food pairings. Could you just speak briefly to that? Uh, there's been, again, lots of studies on this. Um, what I would say is that, you know, to my mind, um, there are many more foods in the world that uh, that warrant beer for the simple reason that, you know, it, 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 it simply fits with them more. I don't know whether it's because of their spiciness or whatever it is, but you think of Asian food or Mexican food and so on. They, beer is so much more refreshing with them. But, you know, a, a dear colleague of mine at uh, UC Davis, I mean, she's done a lot of studies on you know, wine pairings particularly and foodstuffs. And I think the same thing extends to beer as well. You know, Drink what you like and what you enjoy. Um, and that's the most important thing. But psychologically, I think it's, it's more than just pizza. I think beer belongs with a lot of other foodstuffs as well. We've been speaking with Charles Bamforth. His new book is Grape versus Grain. Thank you for joining me, Charles. Thanks for talking to me.